Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Um, Rex, Rex, if anybody comes in later, will you make sure they get an outline there? This is our last week for this half of the study. Pastor Brett and uh, Pastor Brian have got some things going in there and, and, and some catechism and different things like that, so we'll let you know when the other half starts. Uh, but today we're going to deal with infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Let's open with prayer. Lord, you are God of eternity. You have planned everything that even happens. Those things that come to pass, you have ordained. We thank you that you have elected us to salvation in Christ Jesus. We thank you for your eternal word. Help our hearts to be open to it. Help us to understand the difficulties that are attached with it, but yet the simplicity that you have had it written. We thank you for this time. We dedicate it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Inerrancy and infallibility is probably one of the most important parts of bibliology that you can learn. Dr. Edward Young, for those of you who don't know him, he was the professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary from 1936 to 1968 before he died. He was also an ordained OPC minister. He gave these as, as a precise definition for both these terms. By the term infallibility as applied to the Bible, we mean simply that scripture possesses an indefectible authority. As the Lord himself said, scripture cannot be broken. That's in John 10, 35. It can never fail in its judgments and statements. All that it teaches is of unimpeachable absolute authority and cannot be contravened, contradicted, or gainsay it. Now, you probably don't know what gainsaid means. I didn't either, so I looked it up. It's talking about you can't contradict or oppose by words or uh, prove to, to be or declare something to be un, untrue. Anyway, he continues. Scripture is unfailing, incapable of proving false, erroneous, or mistaken. Inerrant, by this word we mean that the scriptures possess the quality of freedom from error. They are exempt from the liability to mistake, incapable of error. In all their teachings, they are perfect, in perfect accord with the truth. For the purpose of our study, I want to use a different uh, definition for it. And this is by Dr. Paul Feinberg. And it's, it, it's one of his, it's one of the chapters in Inerrancy that was edited by uh, Dr. Norman Geisler. <clears throat> and he says, inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with the doctrine, with doctrine or, mortal, or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. Now, let me explain something. I'm not the brightest bulb on the, on the block. So part of the reason I use a lot of quotations is because these guys are authoritative. 
these guys have earned doctorates in theology and have studied a, a, a lot of different things. <clears throat> so that's why I quote. And I think those things display and declare the truth of what I'm trying to teach. Okay? So that's, that's I want to give that, uh, uh, what, what do they call it? Uh, uh, not a sidebar, but a, huh? Well, some, a disclaimer, that's it. <laughs> that's it. <clears throat> Inerrancy, simply put, is the word of God is without error. That it is recorded in the script, that which is, is that which is recorded in scripture is absolutely true. Infallibility simply means that the word of God will not mislead. It is reliable and trustworthy. <clears throat> Part of what we're going to be talking about has to do with some of the subjects that we'll deal with later on. Um, the next uh, study is going to be on canonicity of Scripture, how it all came together and become the book we call the Bible. After that would be the textual criticism. We're going to be touching on part of that today, <clears throat> but it's just to whet your appetite about you know, what's going on. <clears throat> now, there is one caveat, one qualification to this definition that you, you need to understand. It is the idea of original autographs or as originally written or given. <clears throat> the doctrine of inerrancy maintains that the Bible is without error as originally given. This places the emphasis on what the writers wrote. It's those documents. The original documents known as the autographs are the ones that are entirely in, uh, infallible and inerrant. Now, lest you think I'm a heretic, in the uh, Article 10 of the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, which was actually written by R.C. Sproul, and the second half on interpretation was done by Norman Geisler, him being a dispensationalist, eh, so <clears throat> the interpretation we might look a little differently, but, but R.C. Sproul did the one on, on uh, uh, inerrancy. Article 10 states about the autographs. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of the scripture, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from the available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further, and continue here, we further affirm that the copies and the translations of scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. That's some of the rub right there. <clears throat> we deny that any essential element of Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. We don't have the original autographs. That will, I'll, I'll give you an explanation of that just in a minute. We further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. So it doesn't affect that whatsoever. Some people think that, oh, we don't have the originals. You're kind of fudging on that. You know, it's, it could be something else other than God's word. And how do you really know? We'll see about that here in just a minute. There are four things I want you to look at. But I want you to think of the question, why, did God pre didn't, why didn't God preserve the originals? Why aren't they around? Aaron Brake wrote an article yeah, that was, is posted on um, Stand to Reason, Greg Kokel's um, website. 
He says the question often raised is, why would God allow the original transcripts or manuscript text, the original autographs, to be lost? He says, here is one answer that I find very compelling, and I do too, and, and, and listen carefully to it. He says, we have greater knowledge and certainty about the original text through the application of textual criticism to the thousands of available copies that we would, that we would if we had not the original text. He goes on. How is that so? How is it more solid if we don't have the original text? If Christians claim to have the original autographs, it would seem rather easy to raise doubts regarding how to know those originals have not been corrupted or tampered with over the last 2,000 years. Would it really be possible to establish a 2,000-year chain of custody for the original autographs? Probably not. Apologists would be very hard-pressed to come up with convincing and reliable answer. For an example, if we were basing our entire case of the... Now, this is an example of the New Testament. If we were basing our, our um, entire case on the reliability of the New Testament on 27 uh, material objects, which would be the 27 books of the New Testament... <clears throat> we would need to provide a very reliable way of knowing that that material would not have been messed with, would not have been tainted, and to establish the integrity of of that over a 2,000-year period of time. But thanks be to God, this is not the history of our received New Testament text. Instead, God in his wisdom took the originals, using fallible men to reproduce them, diffused the original text type into thousands of documents that together provide a broad, reliable basis and assurance we still possess the original. Given the historical scenario, wholesale change of the text became impossible. They couldn't mess with it. By having the text of the New Testament in particular explode across the known uh, Roman world, far-flung corners of the Roman world, God protected the text from one thing we, centuries and millennia afterward, could never have detected. Wholesale change of the doctrine or theology by one particular man or one particular group who had full control of the text at any point in history. There was never a time when anyone or any group could gather up all the manuscripts and make extensive uh, changes and have them all look the same. So textual criticism will take from here, from here, from here, from here. We literally have thousands of copies and, uh, uh, um, of the New Testament. And, well, I'll read, I'll read something else to you. Well, I want to deal with four things first to answer why. First, while the originals are no longer in existence, we know that they once existed. Why? Because there's copies of them. So they had to exist. Dr. Ron Rhodes, who is also an apologist, tells us that there are more than 24,000 partial and complete manuscript copies of the New Testament. 
These manuscript copies are very ancient, and they are available for inspection now. So our uh, scholars have those to look at. He also said, there are also some 86,000. I read where they said up to 1 million. 86,000 to a million quotations from the early church fathers and s- several thousand lectionaries. Lectionaries are church service books where they have scripture in it. You know, it would be like open the scripture and read it in, in the back of our Bibles and that type of thing. I also read that if you accumulated all the writings of the church fathers together and took scriptures out of all those thousands of writings, you could read. Uh, reduplicate scripture, the whole thing. That's impressive, folks. The bottom line is the New Testament has an overwhelming amount of support and evidence for its reliability. Secondly, our attitude toward the originals will also dictate our attitude toward the, toward the copies. Now, If you think that the originals have errors, what are you going to think about the copies? Yeah, they got the same errors and maybe more, right? Our third attitude, I mean third, our attitude toward the originals will affect our attitude toward the textual scholarship. We have issues with higher criticism as conservatives because part of that is not to prove that scripture is is solid and is inerrant and infallible, it's often done to detract from that. Like we talked about the Jesus seminar. What they did is went through the New Testament and said, oh, Jesus couldn't have said that because, gee, there are no miracles, and, you know, those things just don't happen. So they went and picked and chose and tore, and our uh, New Testament might have been here. By the time they got down there, it was like one-tenth of the site. So we have issues with that. But for conservative scholars to do the same thing, looking at our our texts, it can only embolden us for the the, um, reliability and trustworthiness of Scripture. Fourth, Christ and the apostles didn't have the original. There was no New Testament written when Christ walked the earth. He didn't even have the Old Testament as the original. I mean, who has the copy that Moses wrote? Okay? When you get into textual criticism, we'll see how meticulously those copiers were at keeping God's word very clear and clean. So the absence of original documents does not invalidate the doctrine of inerrancy, nor does it turn the doctrine into some kind of mere academic Um, exercise or gyrations to prove it. It is true. Over the centuries, the original documents have been lost. We have, and we have copies that have survived in various, in various forms, in various areas. There are, I'll leave it at that because I could go on just and talk, Pastor Brett and I, uh, you know, talk about that as well. The textual uh, uh, variations that we do have are evaluated in order to determine what the authors originally meant. However, biblical scholars have been able to determine the wording to the original documents with great certainty 
and as so far as the the <clears throat> the text is discovered to be original, the wording we possess now in our translations are the word of God. There's approximately 97% or higher that the Bible we have today is what was written, duplicated from the, the original text. That's pretty good, folks. That's pretty good. And I was going to bring my New Testament in, my Greek New Testament. It's smaller than this. <clears throat> but scholars tell us, even those real difficult, hard to understand, um, not contradictions, but difficulties, only, only really end up being half the size of a Greek New Testament. That's how few the real serious ones are. So we've got a, a scripture that is just outstanding. Harold Lenzel states this. Anyone who has doubts about the accuracy of scripture that have, been, that have come down, down to us by transmission, that transmission they're talking about copies you know, give, uh, recorded for us, through the copyists, is in, misinformed. If you doubt it, you, you're misinformed. We can say honestly that the Bible we have today is the word of God. This is not... this. Uh, is not to deny the existence of textual difficulties and problems. They are there. But listen to what he says that Bruce, F.F. Bruce, one of the great um, uh, biblical scholars has said, the variant readings about which any doubt remains affects no material question of historic fact or Christian faith and practice. Even... The old King James using the Textus Receptus and the newer ones, ESV, NASB, using other texts. No doctrine is affected. Biblical inerrancy begins by affirming the reliability of Scripture as originally given and ends by affirming the reliability as preserved in our age. So what's the necessity of, of inerrancy and infallibility? If, as Paul wrote to Timothy, we looked at this, this in first, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, if all scripture is inspired, if it is God-breathed, as Theonoustos says, what does that say? If you don't remember what 2 uh, Timothy 3.16 and, and 17, I'm going to give it to you. All scripture is given by inspiration of God or God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man, the person of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If inspiration is true, then it demands inerrancy and infallibility. Why? In the light of God's character, it is God-breathed. Can God do anything less than perfect? Is it possible for God to do anything less than perfect? It is not. Here's how the rationality goes, and this is how we look at it logically. God is true. The scriptures are breathed out by God. Therefore, Scripture is true since it came from the breath of God who is true and truth itself. Does that make sense? Now, let me give you a clarification regarding inerrancy. 
a number of different issues even come up invariably uh, considering the doctrine of inerrancy. What about the variety of styles that's described in Scripture? The variety of, of events that are, are, look like they differ. The different reports of those events. How does this mesh with you know, inerrancy? That doesn't seem right. I have a book by Archer Gleason that's this thick. And all he does, he deals with the difficulties in the Bible. That's just one. <clears throat> Let me give you some examples. John was written in the simplicity of a fisherman. Everybody could understand it. It wasn't difficult. Luke, however, wrote his, both uh, the book of Luke and Acts with a higher quality of verbiage, if you will. He was educated. He was a doctor. And he uses a lot of medical terms in his writings. Paul's epistles are different too. Because it is the logic of a philosopher with the background of a trained uh, a Pharisee. So he was not just a philosopher. You know, he's kind of like a uh, Francis Schaeffer of, of the early early days. He was a... You, probably, you get young folks probably know him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nevertheless. Inerrancy also allows for a variety of details, and they ex- explain the exact same thing. The synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all crammed together. Uh, A.T. Robertson did a synoptic uh, a, a book on the synoptic gospels and put them all together. And sometimes you'll read over here in Matthew and, and he puts them in parallel so you can actually see what they were. And you see some differing words that are used. That's not a problem. Listen, Jesus spoke Aramaic and Hebrew. The writers who wrote the scriptures wrote in Greek. They had to translate the Aramaic and the, the Hebrew into Greek. There is almost never a time where you can go word for word in any translation to another. It's difficult. So when these guys were doing this, one writer would use a slightly different word to say the same thing as another writer in another gospel would do the same thing. You know, look at this. He jumped from the bridge to his death. He leapt from the bridge to his death. Does it mean the same thing? Yes. Also, the writers, and I'm talking specifically about the the Gospels. It may be the exact same episode and event. Luke sees it from this standpoint, or was told from this standpoint. And Mark from this standpoint, and John from this, and Matthew from this. Each one of them had a different emphasis. So when you look at this, you're going, wow. If you ask five people who have seen an automobile accident, I guarantee you there are going to be five different renditions. They may have the same facts, kind of garbled up. No, no, he ran that light. No, she ran that light. Yeah, but it's going to be the same event. So that's what happens often in scripture. Inerrancy doesn't demand either a verbal reporting of the events. It doesn't have to be the exact thing. Listen, uh, uh, Dr. Edwards, uh, uh, Edward Young says, 
In times of antiquity, it was not the practice to give verbatim repetition every time something was written out. And Dr. William Eichhorst says, a verbatim quote could not be demanded for several reasons. First one we already saw, the, the translation from Aramaic to, to Greek according to Jesus' words. Second, the making of references of the Old Testament text would have to be impo- would be impossible if you had to go to the, the temple and unroll these scrolls. Some of them are really long. How would you be able to do that? Most people would not be able to do that. And nobody but the priests are going to touch those scrolls anyway. So they didn't have the scrolls available to them. And there's the issue of the use of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, versus the Hebrew. Differences there. A lot of times when you're reading the New Testament, you say, I go back to that. Wow, that doesn't mean what that did in the Old Testament. It's close, but not the same. The reason is they might have used the Septuagint to, to use that translation. Inerrancy allows also for the departure from standard forms of grammar. Think about it. It would be obviously wrong to impose on Scripture English grammar. Now, you can do that on, on a, a translation. Yeah, they got this word out of order or something like that. You couldn't do that to, to, to um, the New or Old Testament. Let me give you an example. John 10.9 declares that, that Jesus declares, I am the door. In verse 11, he states, I am the good shepherd. In English, this is what you call a mixing of metaphors. That's a no-no. But it's not so in the Greek and Hebrew. Inerrancy allows for problem passages. One thing about scripture, it doesn't try to candy coat. Um, I'm trying to think of who the English um, nobleman was back in the 16th, 17th century. Um, But they were painting him. And he said, you know, paint me warts and all. Do you remember the name? Paint me warts and all. That's what scripture does. You don't see them trying to candy coat sin or the atrocities that happen in war. In some cases, solutions wait for a finding of archaeology or a linguist research and find different words that really needed to be found. There are some that we haven't got all the answers for. But I'll tell you what. Scripture has never been disproven. Archaeology is finding all the time. Oh, I'll show you here. This is just, I got this last night. Ten exciting discoveries in biblical archaeology in 2018. I'm telling you, Scripture is being proved over and over again, even now. There was another one that I saw. It was, it came out in, I think it was April of this year, about a stone, and it had one of the kings, uh, one of our ancient kings that they never thought existed, had his name on it. Archaeology has done nothing but prove Scripture true. So, uh, the statements of Scripture, wherever it is written, is also done as they are. That's part of that argument. Details may vary, 
but still reflect the same thing. Example here. This is in Matthew 8, um, 5 through 13. It's where it's the centurion who comes to Jesus and he says, my, my servant is ill. Can you come? Will you heal him? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll come. And the guy says, oh, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant will be healed. But in the parallel passage in Luke 7, 1 through 10, it says that the elders come to Jesus and said, he is worthy. This guy said he isn't worthy and they say he is worthy. What is he? He felt he wasn't worthy. They felt that he was worthy. But they're true, accurate statements about this guy. It appears, not a contradiction, but it appears that the elders came to Christ first and spoke to him, and then the centurion came and, and actually addressed Christ. What about historic, historical and scientific issues? inaccuracies of scripture we won't get into that this week and it will probably go on to i think it's the when we study the authority of scripture where it deals with the reliability and the accuracy and trustworthiness of scripture but all attempts to discredit the historical accuracy of the bible have failed miserably it's kind of funny because he's, oh, yeah, this isn't in the Bible, you know, because nah, 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 this couldn't happen. A decade or two later, oh, archaeology says, oh, this guy was here. Gee, oh, we must, you don't see them backpedal and say, oh, gee, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Scripture was true. But that happens often. Scientific uh, issues, the Bible does not and will not contradict facts of science. The issue is, is it a fact? It will not do that. Okay, why is inerrancy important to us? Is the debate over whether or not God's word is trustworthy, is that just as theological, uh, something to quibble over? Absolutely not. The question of inerrancy deals with the ultimate authority of God and his word. That's what it's all about. And you know it affects us. It affects pastors. It affects people in the pews. Who wants to get up here and listen to somebody who's just spewing his own opinion? You can get that anywhere going to a lecture. But when God's word is spoken, it is spoken with authority, and this is the authority of God. That's why it's important to us. And then uh, inerrancy governs our confidence in the truth of the gospel. Think about this. If the scripture is unreliable, can we offer a reliable gospel? Oh, you don't even know that's true. Well, yeah, but I think it is. You know, whose opinion? If we are suspicious about errors in scripture, we're going to be suspicious about God's authority. I was hoping Mike would have been here because, you know, he was, he was a special forces. He was airborne. One of the things they do when they're getting ready to jump out out of the plane and before they get in there, they check each other's equipment, make sure they're ready to go. I mean, you don't want some time behind you not doing it right. That's the way um, pilots are with their their aircraft or a helicopter. You don't want to get in there if there's any sense of something wrong. If history contained in the Bible is wrong, how can we be sure of the doctrine or moral teaching is correct. 
the heart of the Christian message is based on historical fact. The incarnation of, of Jesus Christ, coming, uh, God becoming man, demonstrated by the virgin birth of Christ. Redemption, the price that Christ had paid on the cross for our salvation. The death um, <clears throat> reconciliation was gained through his resurrection and his ascension. That sealed it. If that didn't happen, as we talked last time, I think it was last time or time before, and on 1 Corinthians 15, if this isn't true, if Christ didn't raise, we're most people miserable. What kind of life is that? Inerrancy governs our faith in the value of Christ. We cannot have, if we cannot have a reliable Savior without, no, we cannot have a reliable Savior unless we have a reliable Scripture. Have you ever had somebody tell you something that wasn't true? And then you might have told somebody else that that wasn't true? That person may have not intended to lie, but it was a lie nonetheless. If you say that Jesus Christ was God come in the flesh, that he died for your sins, that he resurrected and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he isn't, what do you have? If, as many liberal and, and higher critics suggest, that the stories of the gospel are not historic, and the recorded words of Jesus are only occasionally true, how do we know that we can trust anything about Christ? What we end up doing is relying on some man's interpretation, some guy's wishful thinking in the early church, and and then our faith no longer rests on Jesus Christ, but the opinions of men. Inerrancy also governs our attitude toward preaching the scriptures. A denial of biblical errancy always leads to a loss of confidence in scripture, both in the pulpit and in the pew. It wasn't the growth of education or science that emptied the church after the Second World War, nor was it the result of those wars Instead, it was the cold deadness of theological liberalism, as we talked when we, we talked about uh, neo-orthodoxy. If the Bible's history is doubtful, its words are open to dispute, then people understandably lose confidence in this. People want the truth. People want an authority. They want to hear the word of God. It brings comfort to their hearts and brings salvation to their souls. Inerrancy governs our belief in the trustworthiness of the character of God. We touched on this a little bit. Almost all theologians agree that Scripture is in some way God's revelation to the human race. But to allow it to contain errors implies that God mishandled inspiration, that he's allowed his people to be deceived for centuries, for millennia. Of course, until the modern scholars disentangle what God confused. In short, the maker muddled up, and so we got to straighten it out. So 
you guys can get the truth. Well, truth is not really their, their focus. A church without the authority of Scripture is like a crocodile without teeth. He can open his mouth as often as wide as he wants. Who cares? He's not going to bite. But thankfully, God has given us his inspired word, inerrant and infallible. And we as his people can speak with authority and boldness. And we can be confident that we have the instructions for God for our lives. After we've properly defined the word inerrant, we've also got to be unapologetic in our embrace of the fact that the Bible is God's word. It is inerrant. We love inerrancy because we love our God, because we know that he will never leave us nor forsake us. How do we know that? God's word says so. That's what gives us hope, peace and confidence in God's word. Dr. James White, in his book, Scripture Alone, made this observation. Now, his, his chapter is talking about uh, inerrancy and um, uh, what's the term? Well, I don't know. I can't remember what the term is. Maybe it's in this comment. Inerrancy is the foundation. It's exegesis. Inerrancy is in the foundation of exegesis. Exegesis means to take out of. So it's when you're going to God's word, what pastor does, he goes to God's word, he prays about God's word, he studies God's word, and he takes the truth out, and then he feeds the flock with that. That's what exegesis is. It's a deep study of, of God's word, what words mean, what phrases mean, how it fits in the book, how it fits in the whole Bible. Anyway, he says, inerrancy is the foundation of sound exegesis. Exegesis is the means by which we honor God in his word. Deny inerrancy and the authority of the word disintegrates. When inerrancy is denied, openly or functionally, the foundation of theology is removed. And nothing people have found can replace it. It may take time, but the denigration of Christian truth that flows from the abandonment of his highest view of scripture is simply inevitable. It can't be avoided. So when you undermine God's word, when you, <clears throat> whether it's in your life, whether it's in your studies or whatever, when you undermine God's word, you're taking the truth, the absolute truth away from yourself. That's why we are to be students of God's word. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to study the Greek and Hebrew. That's what pastors do. But it is incumbent upon you to go to God's word, try to understand it, get commentaries, get dictionaries to understand words. Because, folks, your souls in eternity depend on the truth. Well, I'm going to stop for now. I have some outlines that are not outlines, but handouts that I want to give you. This is by R.C. Sproul. It's called, What Difference Does Inerrancy Make? He does a great job here. And he he actually goes over some of the Chicago uh, statement on uh, Biblio inerrancy. So I'm going to set those back there for those of you who want to to get a copy of it. It's good, good reading. Pastor Brett?
Yeah. Um, Josh McDowell's evidence demands a verdict. Scholarly work. And it's readable. I don't like his format in it, but <laughs> it's great reading. And he has other books, too. So, yeah, I, I, that would be the first one. Tim? He's got two yes, he do. Well, that's part of the chapter. He also does the historicity of Christ and those types of things, too. Yeah, but I mean, if someone wanted to get, look into it, one of those volumes is better than the other. The first one, and I'll tell you why. The second one is almost all about textual criticism, and it gets really deep and heavy. Um, I didn't even read the whole thing. You know, I go, <laughs> so, yeah, those two books are, are, are really good. They're solid. And in, in there, he gives, he's a document nut. I mean, it, he just gives thousands of references and, and books that you could read out of, out of that too. So, yeah. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your love and thank you for your word. Uh, may it become real to us by the power of your Holy Spirit because it is true in Jesus' name.